So this evening we're going to be taking a look at Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. We're going to be going over the burial of Jesus. So Mark 15, starting in verse 42, and we're going to be reading through verse 47. In verse 42 it says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And we had learned from the centurion that he was dead. He granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come into your presence this evening, opening up your word, reading about your burial. Lord, that the Spirit just open up our hearts and our minds to receive what your word has to tell us. Lord, in this evening as we look at your burial, Lord, to ask the question in our hearts, have we been buried with you? Lord, is there anything in our lives that we have not buried? Lord, to search our hearts this evening as we go through your word, thanking you for your glory, thanking you what you have done for us beforehand. And Lord, to live a life of gratitude for everything that you have done for us. So we treasure these things in our heart, Lord, and we ask you to go before us. In your son's name, amen. So the title and text, like we've already seen, Mark 15, The Burial of Christ. And it was about 33, 34 years ago that I was swimming in my uncle's pond out in, the, out in the woods in the state of Wisconsin. And my cousin and I were jumping off the raft off of one side into the pond. And as I was jumping off the raft, it was shallow. So I jump off, stand up, climb back on the raft, jump off, and continuously do that. Well, I decided after enough times to jump off the other side. And as I jumped off the other side of the raft, I did not know it was about two or three feet deeper on that side. Now, mind you, I was only six years old. I didn't have a life vest on. So as I jumped off the other side of the raft, and I tried to touch immediately, I went completely underwater. And then I came back up, but I couldn't swim. And because it was too deep, I went right back down again. Now, about two or three weeks prior, I had gone to my first funeral, the funeral of my great-grandfather, Urban. It was the first time I had ever seen anybody in a casket ready to be buried. It didn't torment me. It didn't traumatize me. It didn't do anything. And I had not thought about it until the very moment that I went under the water for the first time. When I went under the water for the first time, it was so dark, all, but all I could see was my great-grandfather in the casket. 
And when I came back up and got some air, my uncle, who was in the pond with me, was yelling at me, stand up, stand up. He didn't realize that it had dropped off either, and I went right back down. And when I went right back down, all I could see again was my grandfather lying in the casket. So in my mind, as I was six years old, I associated this event, not so much the fear of death, but the fear of knowing that I was going to end up in the grave like my great-grandfather. Fortunately enough, my Uncle Dave came over and he swam and he grabbed me, which this whole time was about five seconds, but it seemed like five minutes. And he was able to get me to shore. So it hadn't dawned on me, and the funeral hadn't crossed my mind until this moment. It was the first time, like I said, I saw a dead body in the casket, and it was crystal clear to me at that point that life was finite. That like my great-grandfather, I myself would be buried someday. Death became a reality for me. And seeing the body of my great-grandfather in the casket left a strong impression on me from that point forward. So this evening, as we're in Mark 15, taking a look at the burial of Jesus, will this impact us? Does this impact us? What kind of impact does the burial of Christ do for us? So we find ourselves in Mark's Gospel. Jesus had just died from the crucifixion. His burial is about to take place. And when we think about the gospel in general, and we hear the word gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he classifies it, he gives it three aspects. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. An entire library can be filled regarding the crucifixion of Christ and everything that's been written about it. Same thing with the resurrection. An entire library can be filled with the books that are written on the resurrection. But when we think of the burial of Christ, this often gets neglected. It gets glossed over. Either we focus too much on one or the other, or we're so excited to talk about one or the other, but the burial seems to be the one that gets the least amount of attention. And when it comes to the burial of Christ, what we see here is we have a tendency to block burial out of our thinking in our own life, in our own circumstances. We don't really give much thought to our burial. In our minds, we think that being buried in that whole process is, is it's way off in the future. It's depressing. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. So we live life as though it's off in the far, far future, never giving it any thought. We don't want to deal with the reality of the fact that someday we are going to die and that someday we are going to be buried. So for the remainder of this sermon, we're going to stay right here. We're going to stay focused on the burial of Jesus. So make no mistake about it. Man's return to the dust from which he was taken, Scripture says, is the punishment for sin. Genesis 3.19 says, You shall eat bread till your return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. The burial of dead bodies, yours and mine included, is God's way of symbolizing the humiliation for the sinner. But if we remember, Jesus never sinned. But he took our place on the cross for our sin, and in his burial, he continues his humiliation. So we find ourselves here in a transitionary period in Mark's gospel regarding Christ. The suffering and the torment of Christ are now complete. But his humiliation is yet to be finished. He has yet to be buried. 
Mark states in verse 42 that evening had come. Normally this would indicate sunset or shortly after, but everything that we're about to see here takes place between 3 and 6 p.m., right after Jesus died. Mark also mentions in verse 42 that we see the day of preparation, which took place on Friday starting at 3, in preparation for the Sabbath that was to follow. So we see in this account God choosing to bring three key people alongside of Christ during this time to help bring Jesus down from the cross, to prepare his body for the tomb, and to simply be there in support of him. And who are these three people that we see? We see one is Joseph of Arimathea, two, Pontius Pilate, and three, Mary Magdalene. The question we're going to answer is, how did they react when they saw the body of Christ? Did it change them? Or was it simply business as usual? Was it just one more dead Jewish criminal? How would you have reacted if you would have been there to see the body of Christ? Place yourself in the scenario. How would you have reacted in helping to prepare his body for the tomb? Knowing that you were handling the God-man himself with all of the blood, all of the guts, his face so marred that you couldn't even recognize who he was. A man who came into his own creation and bore this torment for you and I. So the first key person we're going to take a look at is Joseph of Arimathea. Before the burial of Christ, who was he? Luke adds that he was, that he, uh, Arimathea was a city of the Jews. Joseph was a wealthy and he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. And the, supreme, the Sanhedrin was a supreme council in charge of the Jewish affairs in Palestine. So what comes with having such a high-ranking position? Power. Identity, prestige, honor, camaraderie with other people in high-ranking positions. Joseph of Arimathea would make today's list of who's who, the Forbes top 100 list. But Matthew also tells us something else about Joseph, that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. So how did he balance these two together? His love and devotion to Christ on the one hand and his high-ranking political position in the other. The Jewish leaders were the ones who were fighting with Jesus all throughout his ministry, yet Joseph, being a Jewish leader, was also a disciple. So how did he manage this? Well, John tells us in his, go in his gospel that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple because he had fear of the Jews. So it's impossible to balance both Christ on the one hand and the idols of your heart on the other. One has to give way to the other. Joseph accomplished this by staying secret about his devotion to Christ. He feared what the Jews would think. He was concerned over his wealth and his status. He did not want to lose his camaraderie or his high-ranking position 
So he kept his devotion to Jesus silent. So what all of a sudden happened to Joseph? During the burial, look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. So the Romans had just tried Jesus and found him guilty of high treason. The Jewish Sanhedrin, Joseph's very organization that he belonged to, had found him guilty of blasphemy. A shift was taking place within the heart of Joseph. Rather than being concerned about what he was trying to preserve in regard to his career, his respect, his wealth with the Jewish people, now he's going directly to Pilate, asking him for the body of Christ. He became bold in his discipleship. He was no longer ashamed to be seen with Jesus, to be taking care of the body of the one whom the Jews had been fighting with all of this time. The action he had just decided would have permanent consequences on his political career. This, could be, this probably was the worst career move he could possibly have made. And what he was doing at this time, wanting to handle the very body of Jesus, was he was drawing a line in the sand, saying that now he stands with Christ. According to the Jews, or the way the Jews would perceive this, is he was siding with the enemy, the very person whom they had been fighting for. But at this moment in time, Joseph of Arimathea could have cared less about this. Notice also in verse 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So we see here is prior to the death of Christ, Joseph would have made his servants carry the body of Jesus. Joseph would have made his servants prepare it. This type of work that we see Joseph doing before the crucifixion was beneath him. He has now decided to take on the work of a servant in preparing the body of Christ for the tomb. And in preparing Jesus' body to bury him became more important to Joseph than all of the credentials, than all of the prestige, and than all of the honor that he had been looking to preserve during the ministry of Jesus. To be identified with the death and the burial of our Lord in front of everybody to see. As Christ laid there dead, beaten, bloodied, marred, it was at this point where Joseph identified himself with Christ's very own humiliation. His pride was broken. The idols of his heart were tossed overboard. He was now completely sold out to Christ. No more fear of man. No more secretly following Jesus from afar off. Now, for those of us who pursue our own selfish ambitions like Joseph did, think back to a time when you were afraid to identify yourself with Jesus. doesn't need to be something big. could have been in a social gathering with friends and with family. could have been a time where a key choice of words that you decided to say would have immediately raised a red flag 
people would have thought, oh, this right-wing religious type could have came out in front of a group that you were really trying to impress and you did not want your devotion to Christ to come into the conversation. At that moment, were you any different than Joseph of Arimathea before the cross? Is the fear of being identified with Christ the main reason why you don't share the gospel with other people? Things are going well. We're all getting along just fine. We can compromise. We can think, why rock the boat? How about your level of commitment to Christ? Do we have other priorities in life that we're pursuing that we don't want to bury? Are there idols in our heart that we secretly hold on to? Since Christ has given all to his point of humiliation, why do we find it so difficult to bury our sinful passions? Why do we hold on to these idols in our heart, hold them in one hand, but on the other hand also try to live a godly life at the same time? Why do we find it so important on what people think of us and trying to get to that inner circle, knowing when we want to get to there, we have to leave the conversation of Jesus behind us? As Jesus lays there, beaten and bloody, as he's ready to be buried, we see that he was willing to be humiliated for us. Why are we so humiliated then to be identified with him? So one step even further down the road, even further down than where Joseph was at this time, worse than being a secret disciple of Christ is to have no fear for him at all, no reverence, no awe, not paying any attention to what he's saying. Which brings us to our second character this evening, Pilate. Pilate, before the burial of Jesus, was a Roman governor of Judea. In all four gospel accounts, Pilate is mentioned in taking place in the trial. He was a man who was easily swayed by the crowd. Today we'd see him as a politician who's constantly looking at the polls, constantly trying to gain his popularity. What can I do? Who can I be seen with to become more popular so more people would like me? That's the kind of guy Pilate was. And regarding Jesus, his instincts told him that this man appears to be innocent. But the crowd kept influencing him to have him put to death. So here we see Jesus, the God-man, the creator of the universe, the incarnate Son of God in the flesh, standing right before Pilate himself. And Pilate, all he sees in Jesus is just that he's just another Jewish criminal. He's completely blind to the identity of who's standing before him. It's not that he wasn't told who Jesus was. It's not that he didn't hear the words of Jesus. He just refused to listen to what Jesus had to tell him. And in John 18, verse 37, Jesus says this to him, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The truth of God was standing right in front of Pilate in human form. Pilate was able to clearly hear what Jesus was communicating, yet he refused to believe. Worse yet, it hardened Pilate even more to the point where he had Jesus put to death anyways. So during the burial, Mark 15, verse 44 in our text this evening, 
Verse 44 states, Pilate was surprised to hear that he, referring to Jesus, should have already died. Pilate was only able to understand, view, think of Jesus from a human perspective. Pilate viewed Jesus as just another man. See, most people, when they were crucified, it took a lot longer than three hours to die. So when Jesus had died within the three hours hanging on the cross, Pilate was like, he was kind of shocked. He said, he's dead already. Not realizing that it was within Jesus' own power to lay down his life whenever he so choose. Pilate didn't see that aspect of Jesus. He only saw the humanity. He had no spiritual discernment of who Jesus was at all. Notice how easy it was for Pilate to dismiss the identity of Jesus and to simply have the centurion take him off the cross as if he's just another Jewish criminal. This wasn't the attitude that we see in Joseph of Arimathea. And this is not the attitude that we're going to see in Mary Magdalene as she followed him. Now, why is this? What's the difference? The difference is that they, other than Pilate, were born again. Their eyes had been opened, their ears able to hear, to perceive the words that are coming out of the mouth of Christ. The Holy Spirit made them alive, regenerating them. Pilate, on the other hand, was spiritually dead. And that's why it's so easy for Pilate at this time to reject Christ. So then how did Pilate change? Pilate's heart was hardened even more concerning Christ. With the amount of evidence that stood right in front of him, we have the incarnate Son of God face to face. Pilate's heart grew colder. He simply refused to believe. And the fact that Joseph of Arimathea wanted the body of Christ to prepare the burial, it made no difference. According to Pilate, like we've been saying, Jesus was just another dead Jewish criminal. So for the unregenerate person, does this define how you react to the burial of Christ. Hearing this message this evening, is this just another Easter message that you have to sit through? Are you going to hear these words about Jesus? Walk out of the door and lead your life the same way you've always been leading it prior, making no effect whatsoever on how you live. What we see here, and when confronted with the gospel, people often make excuses as to why they don't believe in Jesus. And a lot of times the excuses are always the same. Rather than admitting or taking the blame or taking the responsibility of not believing in Christ, they turn the tables and they make, they blame God for their lack of belief in Jesus. I'll give you an example. How do they do this? Coming out with questions like this. If God was all loving, then why do, people, why do good people suffer? I can't believe in a God that allows good people to suffer. If God is all-powerful, then why is there evil in the world? I can't believe in a God who's not powerful enough to take care of evil. If God is really there, then why doesn't he show himself? God seems to me to be holding himself back, therefore I don't believe in him. So for that sin that reigns in our hearts, we turn the tables and we place it back upon God, saying the reason why I don't believe is and we fill in the blank. Now, these are good questions, and they need to be answered. But the problem is, is even if they were answered sufficiently, a person with a dead heart would still not believe. So these questions, these hang-ups that people have, are not the reason why people reject Christ. 
The truth is, God revealed himself in Christ. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We have a Bible full of what Jesus said and did. Jesus stood face to face with Pilate himself. What more did Pilate need in order to believe? He had the Son of God face to face. The problem is not on God's end. The problem is the natural state of our sinful heart. You don't believe in Christ because you don't want to believe in Christ. No amount of evidence will change a person's mind. Any answer, any excuse to try to get out of this is nothing but that, just an excuse. If you find yourself unmoved by the message of the cross, if the dead body and burial of Jesus does nothing for you, if it is simply just an Easter message you have to endure, you may be in the same spiritual place that Pilate was during this time. Dead in his trespasses and sin, motivated only by his popularity and his power and having no regard for the person of Christ whatsoever. If this is where you find yourself, you may have never identified yourself with the gospel. You may have never buried your sinful nature with Christ. And what is needed is true, genuine repentance to bow the knee to the Lord. But there's good news in this account as well. Good news that affects us both physically and spiritually. For the person who has trusted, for the person who does believe, and the person who identifies themselves with the humiliation of Christ. And for the third character this evening we're going to take a look at is Mary Magdalene. Now Mary Magdalene, before the burial, who was she? The term Magdalene implies that she was from Magdala, a town of Galilee. She may have been a woman of wealth who supported Jesus during his ministry. Luke chapter 8 tells us that she was a woman who had been healed by evil spirits, from evil spirits and from infirmities. Seven demons, to be exact, were casted out of Mary Magdalene by Jesus. Plus, she was also healed from sickness and disease. She was a person who experienced much suffering and much pain in life. Mary appears in all four gospel accounts, and she does as a follower of Jesus in very critical moments of Jesus' life. And in this account, we find here that she's right in the center of the burial of Christ. Now, during the burial of Jesus, where were all the disciples at this time? They vanished. They took off. She didn't. They were scared, yet she stuck around. Why is this? In Jewish and Roman culture, the testimony of a female held no weight in court. It wasn't considered to be valid. So what we see here is God's grace, and you may ask how. By making a woman, or a few women, his key witnesses at the most crucial moment in all of history. God's grace is all over the burial of Jesus Christ. How did she change? She was one of the very few people who actually stared there with Jesus until the end. <clears throat> her gratitude 
from being delivered from so much sin or so much oppression, so much sickness, being possessed by seven demons, having all of these infirmities, she was simply grateful for what the Lord had done for her. And rather than running off after she was healed and pursuing her own ambitions and pursuing her own desires with a clean bill of health, she turned right back around and stayed by the Lord's side to the very end. She no longer viewed herself through the lens of her past. Whatever she was into that caused her to be demon-possessed, whatever happened that brought about her sickness, was buried with Christ. She now walked in newness of life. Her identity was now 100% in Christ. And this was the difference. If you can, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. For those who have been delivered from the bondage of sin, from a past that brings back horrific memories, from sins that you were enslaved to, or sins that were done to you of no fault of your own. Romans chapter 6 tells us of a place where we can put all of those things. Starting in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now notice here in verses 4 through 6, we see all three of the aspects of the gospel that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 4, the burial. Verse 5, the resurrection. And verse 6, the crucifixion. But staying focused on the burial, what do we do with our past sins? What do we do with our past guilt? What do we do with our past anger that we hold on to of things that have been done to us that we just simply can't get off of our mind? We bury them with Christ. It no longer identifies us. It no longer controls us. It no longer rules over our lives. Christ heals by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. If you are in Christ, your past has been completely buried with him. Whatever your past was, it's gone. Your newfound identity is that you are now united to Christ for all eternity. And because of this, we are forever grateful in this life for what we have been delivered from. Mary, sticking around Jesus to the very end when everybody else had taken off, is demonstrating this, just this, that she and her heart and everything that she has is so grateful for what the Lord had done for her and who he is that she stuck by his side to the very end, resulting in faithfulness. So in conclusion, why was Jesus buried? 
not crucified, not resurrected, but buried. One, we see that it proved that he was actually dead, that he wasn't just wounded. Second, we see that it was a part of his humiliation, a humiliation we all experience as a judgment for sin. And three, to remove the terrors of the grave for those who believe in him. Like when I was in my uncle's pond, as I stated earlier, not being able to swim, and every time I went under, seeing my great-grandfather's face was terrifying. But now our faith in Jesus, being united to him, being filled with the Holy Spirit, understanding God's plan for us removes all of that fear. It's not the final resting place for our bodies. On the last days, uh, in the last day, our body will be united again with our spirit, and we will spend eternity in this and our new bodies praising the Lord. So Joseph of Arimathea represents the conflicted heart. His issue was self-denial. You cannot serve both God and man at the same time. One must give way to the other. One must completely bury their old self with Christ. Even those areas that we love to secretly hold on to, the sins that we love, the idols that we want to keep hold of, we have no problem getting rid of some sin, but there's other sin that we just enjoy too much. All of it has to go. A secret disciple of the Lord is one who is ashamed to be the Lord's disciple. Any secrecy we have in our heart, we're ashamed, and that can't be. Our attitude should reflect that of what John the Baptist said. He must increase, but I must decrease. Second, Pontius Pilate represents the dead heart. His issue was his spiritual deadness. God in the flesh was standing right in front of him. It didn't bother him one bit. didn't even seem to cross his mind. He refused to recognize who Jesus was. He refused to bow the knee when Jesus said he was king. He viewed Jesus as simply just another Jewish criminal. Repentance is needed in a circumstance like that. If you find your heart not being moved by the message of the cross, you may want to look and see if true regeneration has yet taken place. Repentance is needed. Third, Mary Magdalene represents the grieving heart. Her issues, her torments, her sickness, she did not allow that to define who she was, but rather she was now identified with her position in Christ. Mary buried her past sins. She walked in newness of life. And in Luke 7, it says, He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. Meaning the less that we are aware of our own sin and our own depravity, the less we turn around and show our gratitude for Christ. Mary was aware of her past sins. She was aware of her past torment. She was forgiven much. And for that, she stayed right by the side of Jesus till the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you for the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, just show us in our hearts secret areas that we're ashamed of. Lord, show us in our hearts areas in our life that have not been buried. Give us a heart, Lord, of more gratitude, more of you, less of us, a sharper understanding of our sinful nature, a sharper understanding of how much our sin just wants to be separated from you. 
Lord, break the power of sin. Expose to us, Lord. Show us where in our life that we need more improvement and increase that love and increase that gratitude and that drive and that passion that Mary Magdalene demonstrated before us here this evening. Lord, if there's somebody listening to this who may identify themselves with Pilate on how their heart responds to the Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit enter into their heart, Lord. Regenerate. Repentance is needed. Lord, please show that, Lord, to that person, bringing them to their knees as Pilate should have done. We thank you for your word and your message and go before us this week, Lord, asking all of this in your son's name. Amen.